and welcome to Primary Care Spotlight, the podcast that brings you all the latest news and insights from Cornwall Primary Care Training Hub. Cornwall Primary Care Training Hub is delivered in partnership with Kerner Health CIC, working on workforce development programmes across the Cornwall health and care system, and we are here to support all those working in primary care. Hello and welcome to Primary Care Spotlight and it is Dementia Week and as part of our Dementia Mini-Series today we will be talking about uh, legal aspects uh, in relation to dementia. In this episode I will be talking to uh, Ben Greg Waller uh, who is a safeguarding facilitator and is part of the Integrated Health Safeguarding Team for the Health Trust, so that's uh, CFT and RCHT here in Cornwall. And in this episode, Ben is going to be talking about uh, decision making and capacity and how that affects safeguarding in relation to dementia. So a really, really important topic and one um, I wouldn't be alone in saying that uh, lots of people, myself included, struggle with. So I do hope you find this useful. Enjoy. Hi there. Uh, welcome to the podcast. If you could just tell me your name and job role, that'd be great. Hi there. Yes, so my name's Ben. I'm part of the Integrated Health Safeguarding Team for the uh, Health Trusts here in Cornwall. So that's both CFT and RCHT. Uh, and I've been in post for about seven years now. Uh, I've just changed roles to uh, Safeguarding Facilitator, which is basically a practice educator uh, looking at improving our training uh, and working towards a a combined training strategy for the trusts. So what aspect of dementia care uh, will you be focusing on today? So today I was going to focus around decision-making capacity, uh, the capacity to make decisions and how that affects safeguarding. This is a sort of vast topic, uh, but there's some key topics and uh, and recurring themes we tend to see. So we were going to look at those. It's a really complex topic. And I know we've had a discussion and where people sort of tend to sort of freeze up when it comes to safeguarding. It's probably fair to say there's a lack of confidence and understanding on how to deliver care uh, to someone with dementia and navigating refusal of treatment and capacity. So what advice do you have for professionals who find themselves in that situation? Well, I'm like I said, for the last seven years, I've been very health focused because I'm sat in the health trusts but both health and uh, our social care colleagues, uh, us professionals, often find ourselves in that dilemma where there's um, where we're involved with a patient who may have a dementia or sim- similar sort of cognitive decline or impairment. There's a need identified for, for support, whether that be equipment or care, uh, but the patient or the family declines or refuses to accept mm. or offered. Uh, so there's a couple of scenarios where this could be it could be the patient not accepting the support. Or it could be an interested party, so that could be a family or a caregiver, being obstructive, whether that's rightly or wrongly, in an effort to uphold uh, what their interpretation or belief of the patient's wishes are, mm. or due to having their own agenda. And we'll think about that side of things, uh, an interested party with their own agenda, a little bit later on. In either scenario, we need to start from the same point, our patient. Uh, if there are questions around capacity, due to the cognitive impairment, we need to establish what our patient's mental capacity is around a specific decision or decisions that need to be made at that specific time. Let's make this about a scenario about um, uh, requiring a package of care. Uh, so yeah. does the patient have insight and understand uh, understanding into the things that they are struggling with and that they uh, that we as professionals believe or have the opinion that they, they need a package of care to support around? So when we have a conversation with the patient, what level of understanding do we believe that they have and what are their views and wishes that they're expressing when we're having that conversation and talking around that? The person may be very clear 
and they may be giving us no reason to doubt their decision making and their ability to make decisions uh, at this time and their refusal of help uh, becomes an unwise decision. The other uh, outcome is during conversation we we clearly uh, get that indication and we believe that person lacks insight capacity around the situation and our concerns and at this point we will be referring back to earlier in our conversation has the patient expressed any views or wishes uh, but, or are we aware of any advanced decisions uh, about the patient's wishes that we know of? Uh, we should be looking to uphold these sort of views and wishes uh, or decisions as best as we possibly can, as long as it's safe to do so. Maybe uh, the wish was to stay at home for as long as possible. Not unreasonable. A lot of our patients want to be uh, at home as long as they can. They don't want to go into care. Uh, we would need to ensure that all practical steps are taken to facilitate that wish as long as it was safe to do so. Uh, if we were needing to put in restrictions in place, uh, so for instance, like pressure mats uh, or uh, a stair gate to stop someone accidentally falling downstairs, um, we must be seeking legal framework to allow us to do that because we're uh, potentially interfering in their, their human rights and their rights to liberty. We may need to consider the use of uh, the DOLS framework, the Deprivation of Liberty Safeguards, uh, or an approach to the Court of Protection to agree a restrictive care plan if that's the case. What we must remember is... If someone lacks capacity and there's no unpaid carer, so that's family or appropriate friend, to advocate for them or who we can consult with on their behalf around best decision, best interest decision making, we must be making an approach to an independent advocate uh, around mental capacity to support our best interests conversations and planning. So capacity can be a really challenging area for professionals to assess. So what advice can you give and what support is there around assessing capacity? Again, it's, it's hugely complex. You're absolutely right. The, the best advice and my main advice would be always go back to the law. Uh, if we think back to the Capacity Act of 2005, there's five key principles that must always be upheld. So the first two are starting from a presumption of capacity and communicating information in a way that's accessible to the person at that time. This is our conversation. We should be using appropriate tools and aids to ensure information is shared with the person about our concerns and it's on the level the person can engage with and understand. So really obvious example, you wouldn't give someone who's visually impaired, a blind person, lots of information leaflets to read about a potential surgery, for example. We need to capture how we've gone about this conversation and any responses from the patient uh, that we've gotten in our documentation. As this is our evidence or our workings out that we will use uh, later to sort of build a view around that person's capacity around the decision. Principle three of the Mental Capacity Act says people are entitled to make that unwise decision. And just because we as uh, health professionals, that's me defaulting back to my health background, we as professionals don't agree with that decision does not indicate that person lacks capacity. In a situation like this, we need to consider and we need to work with the person to establish further why they've come to that decision. It could be as simple as a misunderstanding or misinterpretation of the support uh, and what that would be. So a lot of people often have the misconception that a package of care uh, would rob them of the last of their independence they have left. Uh, people yeah. coming in and interfering with their lives when in reality the aim of a package is to promote and extend independence we need to go back to our conversation have we explained it clearly enough has that person got a, a proper grasp of what we were offering we as professionals may need to compromise and negotiate uh, on the level of support someone may be more willing to accept a smaller package of care than we would want for them but at least we're they, they've got something we've got professional eyes going in and that that's always that consideration we we might need to negotiate if lacking capacity we come into the arena of uh principle four and five of the mental capacity act 
So that's best interest and least restrictive. So as I already mentioned, we must be ensuring we're meeting the person's needs and mitigating risk in the most proportionate and the least restrictive way to uphold that person's uh, views and wishes, if at all possible. So we must ensure the involvement of appropriate um, interested parties such as family or ensure an advocate's been identified to support if we're making best interest decisions on behalf of a person. Can I just ask, in regards to all that, is there any... I mean, anyone who's sort of seeing patients, whether they're sort of a registered professional or a healthcare support worker, will be assessing capacity. So, I mean, is there, I mean, is that right? Is that the case that anyone who's working with patients would be assessing capacity? It's not just like a, you know, the idea that it just should be a doctor or it should just be a, a registered. And this is a common one. You, we quite often get that call of, oh, we're waiting for a doctor to assess capacity. Yeah. The, the, the decision maker is the person who should be assessing capacity. So if you're talking about a patient who needs, they're, they're in, in soil clothing, they, they need a, a change and, and a wash because they've been incontinent, a healthcare would be looking at uh, potentially carrying out that, that intervention, that support, helping that person get changed. That healthcare is a decision maker about that situation. They're not going to walk away from a person going, well, they, they've said they, uh, they, we know they've got a cognitive impairment, they don't have the um, but they won't let me change them, so I'm just going to leave them in soil clothing. That's not appropriate. That's not the right thing to do. So yeah. that healthcare worker would have that conversation with the person. Looks like you 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 need need a fresh fresh set of pajamas. We need to change your bed. Let let's pop you out. Let's get you changed. Get you freshened up. And that person's either going to comply and engage around that, or if they're resisted because they're confused or agitated, they're in a state of distress. That healthcare is going to be thinking about that best interest decision making and taking reasonable and proportionate steps to engage that person to carry out that that intervention uh, and get them changed, whether that's getting a colleague to help uh, with uh, engagement and distraction and a double-handed sort of change situation, or whether, again, that person's so distressed and agitated that we're needing to escalate to the point of uh, considering other more restrictive interventions like at holds or or medication just to yeah. um, take the edge off. Uh, it might be a doctor prescribed something to help that patient calm down. Mm-hmm. Um, people often default to chemical restraint being the most restrictive situation. Yeah, it's a bit of a grey area in my view because I'd far rather see someone who's been given some medication to help them manage a situation better, feel calmer than six people hanging off of all their arms and legs to yeah. try and keep them keep them safe in a situation so it, it's that balancing act and it's that judgment call and like I said there's professionals around you as well you're never on your own in these sort of situations if, from a hospital perspective yeah. in a environment uh, you've got colleagues you can ask who can support yeah. engage around that side of things but yeah it's decision maker who is the person who's assessing that capacity so that that's that one that catches people out quite often so it's depending on what the decision is uh depends on who you would add class to your decision maker but it could be anyone no i just thought that's such an important point isn't it i guess that's why the training is so important because it really is everybody's business isn't it so absolutely so when it is evidenced and agreed someone does lack capacity what is the best interest and how do we ensure we are acting in the best interests of a person so again best interest is quite an interesting topic all on its own um it, it's quite a generic term uh, that requires an individual consideration in every case so we're doing it in best interest or in their best interest is said a lot. But how are we evidencing that our action or actions are actually in that specific person's best interest? Best interest should never be about what's easiest or convenient for professionals. It must be person-centred for that individual. 
anecdotal example, we've got an elderly person. They're in their late 80s. But they're fit, mobile, generally well. Uh, and we know there is a wish to be at home as long as possible. They don't want to go into a care home setting. They do have a dementia, which is causing cognitive decline, which is getting worse. Day to day, they manage really well at home at this time. They potter about doing their own thing. They make a cup of tea when they're thirsty. They go to the fridge and get a sandwich at lunchtime when they're hungry. They're generally safe during the day. Uh, and someone tends to look in on them in an evening, make sure they've had a hot meal, make sure they've taken their medications. However, at night, they have a tendency to wander. They're often found in the street, sort of 2am, confused. Neighbours have been returning them home occasionally. The police have been involved a few times and the police have brought them to a healthcare setting. They've brought them to ED, for instance, because the police, in their professional opinion, don't feel it's safe to leave that person at home at that time because they're so confused. It's not appropriate or in the person's best interest to place them in an EMI nursing home with locked doors, 24 hours nursing care. They don't need that level of intervention. The best interest and the least restrictive for this person would be to look to manage the risks at night. Mm -hmm. So that might be the application of adaptive technology. As I mentioned earlier, the pressure mats, so you know when someone's jumped out of bed. A door alarm, so you know if they've left the house. We might be looking at some sort of package of support being a night sitter, or if it's appropriate, possible with a family could maybe uh, start staying overnight, for instance, whether we look at that granny annex type situation. Mm -hmm. We should only consider more restrictive options if there's no way to achieve safety with uh, least restriction. So advocacy is a vital part of best interest decision making when a person lacks the ability to decide for themselves. So how do we ensure someone has an advocate representing them? So, yeah, we we need to ensure there is someone appropriate to consult if we're making decisions in best interest for a person. If, as I mentioned earlier, there's no unpaid carer, so that's, like I said, family or appropriate friend, someone who knows that person very well, who could be consulted, we must seek support from an independent mental capacity advocate, an IMCA. So Cornwall commissions the advocacy people who are a national advocacy agency um, to support advocacy needs for our patients here in Cornwall. There's an online referral portal for anyone to use on the advocacy people's website. It's like a web form that you fill in or you can actually call their helpline. They've got a help and advice line and discuss the case and make a referral that way. Some patients are already known to the service. So phoning the advocacy people can be a way of getting in touch with an advocate who already knows and has supported that person previously and would be able to offer immediate advice, guidance and support because they know the case, they know the person. Often social care will also be aware of an involved or previously involved advocate. If you think your patient needs an advocate, please speak with the advocacy people or a social worker or your safeguarding uh, leads for advice uh, and guidance around that situation. For my point of view, where I sit in health and in the integrated safeguarding team, we actually have an independent uh, mental capacity advocate from the advocacy people integrated into our health safeguarding team. Mm-hmm. So anyone who works within the, the hospital trusts, either CFT or RCHT, contacting our uh, single point of access safeguarding team can get you straight through to, to an advocate who can give advice and guidance about any aspect of sort of capacity best interest. But for people out in uh, the, the wider population, whether you're a uh, a relative or a carer for a patient or your uh, a care setting um the advocacy people website is your, your go-to way of getting in touch with advocacy so when does a situation become a safeguarding concern like what would be an indicator that there is abuse or, or neglect happening so there's several reasons we might need to start thinking about safeguarding response or the oversight of um, a situation by a social worker so as i mentioned coming back to 
a situation of an interested party interfering or obstructing uh, our plans to try and maintain someone's safety. If a person were concerned about lax capacity, make a decision and we're significantly concerned for being coerced, or sorry, or we're significantly concerned they're being coerced into declining help, we need to be thinking about making a safeguarding referral to the local authority, the council, about the situation. It may be the interested party has similar concerns or misconceptions about what our our proposed intervention means for that person and better explaining our rationale why help is needed and the purpose of, of that help may resolve the issues uh, going back to that conversation we might have to revisit that that conversation with with the the person who's advocating for that person uh, and in improving that understanding it might very well resolve the situation and the issue we also often see the situation where a caregiver is uh, locking a patient in an area of the home uh, to prevent the wandering and keep them safe while it's almost certainly being done uh, with the best intentions it is an unlawful restriction and the person could come to harm as a result. So support is needed to manage that situation appropriately. This isn't necessarily, as I said, intentional abuse, but it does need a safeguarding response. Mm. If we're concerned the obstruction is due to another agenda, such as making sure the patient's money isn't all spent so the family can inherit maximum amount, for example, um, we must make sure there's a safeguarding response in place and that independent advocacy is available for the patient as the interested parties uh, would appear not to be acting in that person's best interest yeah. and it should not be considered appropriate to consult uh, about in these decisions and again that we need to be documenting as well if we're seeing these concerns we need to make sure we've documented that evidence so we can support that that rationale if we have situations where the person we're concerned about has capacity and they're declining the support we're offering it's an unwise decision if this leaves them or others uh, at risk of coming to harm so if we're thinking about self-neglect or hoarding type situations, uh, particularly with hoarding where there's a risk of fire if they live in a block of flats, if they're in an old mining cottage with uh, sort of uh, shared roof space, no fire breaks. We've got significant risk to others uh, there. Uh, and we're struggling to engage that person in support. We again must be referring this to the local authority safeguarding team. There's a duty under the Care Act 2014 yeah. for social care to have oversight of a situation where there's an unmet need and a risk that cannot be mitigated by a service provision we have access to in our organisation. So the local authority have the duty to look to see if there's another agency or another organisation who could be brought in to help engage and help mitigate those risks. Anytime we have concerns about that situation, please ensure that at the very least you're seeking advice and support from your safeguarding leads or getting in touch directly with the uh, safeguarding triage team within the council, the local authority, if a referral to safeguarding is indicated, you must complete this referral uh, and share your concerns. And is that referral just through the Commonwealth Council website and that anybody can sort of fill out electronically? Absolutely. Uh, that's a really good point. The um, council have just gone to an online referral portal from the start of April. So okay. if you go to the council website, it used to be you'd find a self uh, a safeguarding uh, referral form to download and it was a Word document you'd fill in an email now it's a link to an online portal much like the police 101 online crime reporting portal and it's a step-by-step process it asks you for information you you complete it and fill it in uh, and then you hit submit and it sends it straight through to the, the local authority the council's safeguarding triage team for them to to look at that situation uh, and come up with a, a plan a decision about how they're going to manage that case so this is much more accessible to everybody this way we call more sort of 
come in line with other areas, other counties around the UK who have already been using these systems. And one of the massive benefits is uh, it's not just accessible to professionals. It makes uh, making safeguarding referrals as a member of the public a lot easier and a lot more accessible to do as well. All right, great. So um, any final thoughts that you'd like to sort of end on? Final thoughts would be around there's lots of training available uh, around capacity, around safeguarding. Uh, there's some new training that I'm involved in sort of working on developing at the minute with the Safeguarding Adults Board, uh, which will be accessible to all professionals via the, the Safeguarding Adult Board training website. This particular training we're working on is going to be giving consideration around how to manage challenge from family when trying to support a patient. Uh, it's being developed based on some early learning from uh, a recent local case review. If you're unsure about a situation where there's a question around capacity or services involved uh, or involved parties are working in the best interest of a person that you support, my advice is uh, to seek advice from your, your safeguarding leads or going to, like I said, the local authority, the safeguarding triage team. They've got a phone number. You can give them a call and they will talk through the concerns with you. You can have that conversation and they will give advice as to whether a referral is needed or whether there's another appropriate involved worker already sat within the council, if there's a social worker already in place. Yeah. Uh, they'll get you in touch with them so you can have those conversations around what your concerns are. All right. Well, thank you very much for uh, speaking on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. all today from primary care spotlight thank you for listening and i look forward to you joining me again soon for more information you can visit our website www.kernerhealthcic.org.uk forward slash cornwall training hub you can also follow us on twitter at cornwall underscore th and on facebook at cornwall training hub to speak to the training hub team about how we can help your practice or career please contact us at kernerhealthcic.workforce at nhs.net if you have content ideas or would be interested in being interviewed for the podcast, please do get in touch. Bye for now.